So Hi Felicia is a podcast that I started with the idea of having conversations on a variety of topics, trying to do a deep dive, um, maybe knowing something about the person, maybe not. Um, One of my guilty pleasures is um, Criminal Minds and the team at the BAU, and they always profile a serial killer or an unsub by the fact that that they usually start in a geographical location that's comfortable to them. So I I do do that. So I am using friends and family and friends of friends and Facebook friends, folks who are basically in my sphere at first, to interview and have some conversations. Because I've always been curious about... um, you know, where people come from, what their interests are, and I get really jazzed about talking to someone who's really enthusiastic about a subject that maybe I know a little bit about, maybe I know nothing about. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with my different guests, and um, please feel free to comment, send questions, um, or send suggestions for guests that you think might be interested uh, to be on High Felicia. My guest today is Dr. Sandra Adams, and I call her Sandy because I know her. She is a wise woman. She is a friend. Um, I don't want to say mother figure because I think she's a little too young for that, but um, she is uh, my fiance's cousin, and um, she happens to be the person in most recent memory who made me a breakfast when I stayed at her house overnight that could have definitely fed the Dothraki horde. And um, I have hadn't had a memory of waking up to somebody cooking breakfast for me in a while, so that was lovely. Um, uh, her official bio. Sandra Adams is an artist and a writer whose work explores ideas about ancestral lineage, kinship, belonging, and place. She works in a variety of mediums, including stone, textiles, found objects, and photo documentation. Her practices include art making, life writing, ritual, and pilgrimage. She defines her worldview as a new animist and only, half-jokingly, calls herself the village petroglyphist. Her interests and passions include archaeology, anthropology, sacred art, shamanism, ritual, and indigenous knowledge. She was born in Melrose. Uh, She's moved many times, and as a kid, this trend continued into her adult life. In 1995, she left the U.S. to live in Indonesia and then moved to Australia, where she spent nearly 20 years. Though she has never lived in Malden, it has been a part of her life from birth. Her parents both grew up here and her grandparents, and then her uncle and aunt lived in a house on Noble Street that is the only family home she has known all her life. She returned to New England in 2015 and now lives in western North Carolina with her beau, who um, I have stayed in their house and it is lovely, and I cannot recommend that part of uh, North Carolina more highly. It's uh, not too far from Asheville, which has a lovely, thriving artist community. 
So I hope you enjoy our conversation today. I am sure we will run the gamut. And as always, Sandy is uh, wise, knowledgeable, and definitely very funny. So hope you enjoy our conversation today. had no love since January, February, June or July. No time, ain't no time to stay Outdoors and spoon, so shine on, shine on Harvest moon for me and my Uh, this is Hi Felicia, the podcast. I am your host, Felicia Ryan, and my guest today, which I'm very excited about, is Dr. <laughs> Sandra Adams, or I call her Sandy. Tell me again what you have your doctorate in. Um, well, that's it's a mix of things. It's interdisciplinary, and it's um, mostly visual art, but a lot of anthropology and archaeology thrown in for good measure, a bit of sacred studies, um, and a few other little bits and pieces because I'm, I have a hard time making up my mind. That has been the theme of a lot of the guests that I have interviewed up to this point. Not We don't describe it necessarily as a hard time making up our mind, or maybe previously we did, but it's an idea that um, perhaps when you come to things with an artistic viewpoint, you put many different interests together in a unique way. So it, it's sort of hard to define, like, I do X, Y, Z. I am X, Y, Z. How do you, do you relate to that at all? I do a lot, actually. I, I um, for a while, was thinking that because my my inclination was to throw myself into some foreign place and to see how other people lived and what they did, that... Um, one of the difficulties with that was, with that was how other people related to it. And so um, I thought that if I had become an anthropologist, then it would have helped other people kind of understand that need in me. Right. Um, but I, I, what I am ultimately ended up feeling was that I chose the right thing in choosing art as my discipline because that allowed me to go anywhere, do anything, look at whatever. Like if I want to move from from science to cookery to history to anthropology to archaeology, art can relate and cover it all. And so it actually has been kind of a good blanket for me throughout my life and, and allowed me to move where I needed to, I think, more than anything else. One of the things we thought we might talk about today, and I did previously, um, before we started, kind of read your bio so people will have a sense, perhaps, of some of the things that you listed about yourself. But one of the things that I thought we'd talk about was sort of origins. And I know that you never lived in Malden, but you have a huge amount of family history in Malden. So how do you... Well, actually, I was thinking about that the other day. Um, I, I did live in Malden. Oh, and I, well, I, well, there was a reason to forget that because I only lived there until I was nine months old. So okay. I was not aware of living in Malden. Okay. But my first place of residence was actually Malden. And then... My parents, you know, like most parents of the 50s generation, bought a little house in the suburbs and we moved out, you know. But, mm. but yeah, I, I started in Malden and have come back to Malden, as you know, all my life yeah. um, because I've always had family there. And you have two interesting family lines that both have, like, huge roots in Malden back. Great-grandparents on both sides or just one side? 
Um, both actually, and my my um, both my, you know my parents both grew up in Malden, and their families were there for at least a generation, if not more. Um, so you know, yeah. So I do have strong ties to there, and you know, and it and it is because we. My family moved a lot when I was young. Malden was the one place that was kind of a, a locator. You know, like, it was the one place I have returned to all my life. You know, like, a lot of people have a family home they return to. For me, it's a house in Malden that my grandmother lived in and then my uncle lived in. And it's the only house I've gone to, you know, for all my life. It's the only place that's been constant there in that way. Sort of like a, an X on a map or something. Yeah, 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 definitely. Like home place. If I were, if someone to say, what is your home place? I think it, you know, I, I would say that or, or what house most represents, you know, home and place to you. It would be the house in Malden. Other ones, I mean, I can, you know, the, the other ones I was in, sometimes I was in them so briefly, it was like I can barely even remember what my room looked like, let alone what the house or the town or what it felt like or any of that sort of thing. So, yeah, so, but the Malden house I've been in, you know, since I was a baby. Do you think and I'm no longer even close to being a baby. <laughs> You're still a baby. <laughs> do you do you think it's an attachment to the physical space as or is it a more attachment to the fact that there's been so many ancestors and people who have inhabited it? I think it's both, you know, like I think it's my history and I was I, I've talked to a few people who have this this, um, you know, very, very interesting ideas about how particularly the natural environment imprints on you when you're young. And so, you know, whatever was the kind of outdoor environment of your youth is usually the one that you feel most familiar with. And and I know when, you know, when I moved back to um, the Boston area for a period around 2015, I was living um, in Salem. And and very close to where I spent very, you know, my young formative years in Beverly. And there was something about the lay of the land, the quality of the light, um, you know, that sort of estuarial marshland um, that is much of the North Shore that that just felt so familiar. And, And I wasn't aware of how unfamiliar other places felt until I was there. And I thought, oh, yeah, this. And even mm-hmm. even the, you know, the street names, Dartmouth and, you know, all the kind of old New England names that were around on all the streets just, just felt familiar. And I spent, well, as you well know, I spent the better part of the first year lost driving around Peabody and whatever, trying to find my way home to Salem. But it, it never felt threatening because it was all very familiar. And, you know, like I always kind of knew, like if I had headed east, you know, for long enough, I'd hit the Atlantic and, and um, I'd be able to figure out my way from there. And, you know, just that kind of sense of, of like, I don't know, intrinsic knowledge sort of a place mm-hmm. was really, really comforting. It is, and I think I, I love that your uh, sense of home has been uh, has evolved and has so it's not a fixed point in time. Even though you have this sort of ancestral home, you can come home to your your home is not necessarily uh, something that can't be fluid or flexible or changing. Well, part of my research actually led me to the understanding that. Well, most of us, even though we don't acknowledge it, um, where we spend most of our time is in transition. And me, literally, you know, like like the, for me, most of my 
energies and efforts have been spent in moving from place to place or idea to idea or project to project. So, and it's the transition part that's so juicy and creative and, and interesting and, and, and that I became then really comfortable with the idea of, of sort of living in a transitional sort of place, you know, not, not worrying so much about getting to my next destination or to my next home place or, or to, you know, the place where I could shoot down roots or the, the situation in which I could shoot down roots. It was like, it was more about just being comfortable with process. Um, and I've always loved process. I mean, that was, that's the thing that, that thrills me about art, actually. I mean, when I finish a piece, I could really care very little about it. But, but, um, but it's the process that I'm just enthralled with. You know, I love being caught up in making something and, and the way things can change and, and, and how they often, my works will often tell me what they need to be, you know. So that sort of lack of control and flinging myself into a void is something that I've actually enjoyed. And now I have more, you know, better language for it, you know, I think. That's a commonality. <laughs> you mean I put you in a trance? You did. You really <laughs> did. But I, I think that's the thing that you and I share in common. I have always been in love with the process of things and not necessarily in the feeling of transition. I think I have grown accustomed to it and embraced it more and more, realizing that I don't have to, my sense of achievement is not necessarily always in the finish line or in the finished thing, but that I do love that process. I love the process of exploring. I love the asking of questions uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I was dying to have you on my podcast because I think that that is just that is the description of what my podcast is is this idea of asking questions and being in process and sort of seeing where things go but I think you're like this perfect embodiment to me of what that what that is and successful is not the right word but I guess it is the the one that I would choose like being successful at it really embracing it and loving it and using that as a way to define sort of how you want to work and what you want to do. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of people, um, even artist friends, they, they assume that there's a, you know, with, with artworks, there's a success and failure rate. And so I've been asked a couple of times, like how many of my works would I consider to be failures? And my answer is none of them. Because until their successes, they're not done. And so it doesn't really matter to me how long that takes. You know, like, and I have things, as you well know, that have been in, in process for years. And it's not that I, I'm unsatisfied with them. I just don't know where they're meant to go yet, you know. And, and, I mean, sometimes that means I start a large piece and it ends up that I only cut out some small piece of it to use in something else. Still, then I consider that a success. And mm -hmm. so I think it's the way you approach what you're doing. And, and for me, one of the clearest ways to describe that is that it's never about the object. It's not about the thing. It's about the getting there. And so, you know, as long as I'm in process in something, um, you know, there's, there is no success or failure. So, so it, it, it kind of is freeing. And, and I, I do like that. And, and I also don't tend... I don't tend, and I have nothing against this, and I admire beautiful craft, but I don't tend to choose processes that are very difficult, you know, or if I use difficult processes, I don't have an expectation of what my end result will look like. Because again, I, I like to um, collaborate, for lack of a better word, with the materials I choose. Mm -hmm. So for instance, like, you know, I've, I've, I've done some, 
um, carving of petroglyphs into stone. And, and while I might have an idea of what the design is supposed to look like or what I'd like it to look like, the stone will tell me where the line is supposed to go. And so I may think it's going to go this way and it'll actually go that way. And, and I have never responded to that in a way that, that is like a disappointed or frustrated. It's like, okay, well now it needs to change. And, and, and then I think about how, or I work through it a bit to see where it is meant to go. And, I honestly think that sometimes that leads me to much better work than I would have come to on my own. And and so, again, that's an, another way of being in transition, I guess, or in process, is, is that I work with what, I guess, other people might refer to as mistakes, but they, to me, are just new information, and, and, and it takes me in a different direction. And, and I think, you know, like... I think there's a bit of ego involved in thinking that I can come up with the best possible solution for something. I mean, I need to collaborate with forces beyond me in order to get to the best stuff. And so so I'm kind of happy to let go of the rain um, artistically or um, probably even in life. You know, like there's there's a lot of things I don't need to control. And and I'm happy that way. And I think, you know, like one of, I'm not particularly religious, but one of my favorite expressions is, if you want to make God laugh, make a plan. Because I think that that has that aspect to it. You know, like you can really set yourself up for failure, frustration, heartache, whatever, if you have this fixed idea of where you're going to end up or what something's going to be or or how it's what it's going to look like. I think that's always been a part of your personality, or I think that's something that you learned from your upbringing of moving a lot and having transition. And well, funnily enough, I, I it's something that I learned, but not from my upbringing. And when you were talking before about, you know, about how you also like the like process and being in transition and 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 the unknowns, that's very much um, counter to the culture in which both of us were raised. You know, mm-hmm. we are supposed to never be lost. We are supposed to know the answers. You know, you go to school and it's all about getting the, the, the right answer, not asking great questions. Um, and so, you know, so any of those things that you or I have gained or anyone has gained, it's from, it's from questioning culture and saying, well, hang on, that doesn't get you to the best places. And, yeah. you know, it, it, there's no, it's no accident that a lot of the best discoveries were not intended, you know, like the, the, that things come from other plans. And, and I think, you know, true intelligence is the, is the ability to see the potential in a mistake and to work with that, you know, rather than you know, the idea that there's some brilliant goal that we get to, um, you know, and I love the idea that we are what we are, in D, you know, speaking from a DNA perspective, um, because of the series of mutations, you know, like, right. like that's, that's, that's a big piece of this as well. And, and, um, yeah, one of the things that I most enjoyed about, um, a trip I took, um, we've talked about this before, but the ancestral pilgrimage I went yes. on in 2008 was learning how to love being lost. And, you know, like, it, and it was a revelation to me. I mean, it was in my 50s, but it was a revelation that being lost could be something, or could, could be a goal. And, you know, I had spent, I had been trained to and had spent my entire life trying up to that point never to be lost, to always know where I was or where I was going. And there was something really lovely and sort of primal about just walking through the world, not knowing where I was and not caring, you know, and, and I kind of like that still. 
so I have to say, I'm, I still, it still challenges me at times, you know, um, where, you know, I'll be out on a hiking trail or whatever and not quite know where the end is and, and starting to get a little panicky. So, so I have to fight my own training um, to get to my more primal nature, I guess. There's a great book that I read um, last spring that it still sits with me and it comes back. It's called The Friend by Singrid Nunez. And it's a very interesting piece of writing, and it's a, about a writer talking about her other writer friend, and the plot, without without giving out spoilers, doesn't end up the way that you think it is. But the writer that she's writing about is, um, there's a word for it in French, and I can't think of it, but it's about, it's the, uh, it's the act of walking to... Flaneur. Yes. Is it Flanner? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I knew yes. you would knew this. And I love I love this whole concept and idea of it. And she's yeah. obviously a woman writing about a male writer, but they were p- positing could a woman be a flaneur? And because there's no French well, word for it. Well, actually, she's a flaneur. She's a flaneur. Yeah. And yeah. she was like, you know, can, could is- you? Could you be as a woman? Could you be that lost? Yeah, well, and I, there is uh, actually there's an amazing book by Re- Rebecca Solnit, who is a writer that you and I have talked yeah. about before, yeah. and I love her writing. It's called Wanderlust, and it's a, a history of walking. Um, and she talks a lot about the flaneur and whatever, but also the sort of politics of being a woman walking, and right. particularly a woman walking in a lost kind of way or in times that are, are um, yes. you know, not sanctioned for her. So, like, where the idea of the streetwalker came from and the whole idea of a woman walking at night must be one of loose morals. But she, and, and also, because she's of loose morals, then she is, um, you know, easy prey and, and acceptable to, to look at her as easy prey. And so there's this whole politicized thing about being a, a woman who walks. Right. Um, which is really interesting to look at as well. And, and you know, I mean, but there's other people who write about walking that I love. There's a guy, um, well, I can't think of his name right now. I'll, I'll, I'll get it in a minute. Um, an, an Englishman who writes about um, travel and the idea of how, you know, how Westerners in particular look at travel. Um, where we don't even consider the means of conveyance, you know, because we'll get there quickly by air or, or, or train or bus or whatever. And we're not touching the ground as we pass. And so we don't, we don't engage with, with the transition of place to place. Mm-hmm. And our focus all then becomes on uh, what he refers to as successive places of rest. So it's not about like the whole day's walk you've done to mm-hmm. go from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. It's about point A and point B, which is kind of absurd when you think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like and and um, and and it is that goal orientation thing that I mean I'm trying so desperately to lose in my own life, and you know, and and with more success some days than others, but but that it not be about the goal, but about the process and the transition and the actual walk. Um, he goes on also to talk about how, you know, his perspect, um, perception of, of how Western culture became so disengaged from nature was through the advent of two things. And one was shoes, because it put leather between, you know, our feet and the ground. Mm-hmm. And the other one was chairs because we then were sitting up off the ground. And, and I think there's a lot to be said for both of those right. ideas. You know, and, I do love the idea, because I also work as a life coach, that um, 
we're supposed to be teaching clients or part of the training is about teaching clients to be goal oriented or to how to develop uh, steps to get to their goals and have very clear defined goals because those are more easily achievable. I don't even like the word goal. Uh, when I talk with clients, I talk about what your intention is. And yeah, so perfect word. If your intention can be clear, you can like, you know, without some sort of some people thrive in more structure. Some people don't. Some people need that idea of an intention. So if you have an intention and you can be clear with your intention, you can move in any direction flexibly that you want, like an IKEA cart that has the multi-directional wheels. Like we always think of it as straight line, backwards and forwards. That's it. Like So we're either moving forward or we're losing ground. And if we have an intention, it's 360. We can move in any direction we want to. Yeah, and I think, too, we, um, I mean, as long as you allow yourself to think of an intention as being a a fluid entity, then you're fine. You know, like, Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I do um, is to teach academic writing. And there is a thing in the writing of an essay that's called a thesis statement. And I have a lot of students who struggle with that idea because it sounds so ironclad. So they come up with a thesis statement. This essay will argue such and such. And then they'll be writing me, you know, emails going, well, can I change my thesis? It's like, of course you can. It's your thesis. But it becomes this thing that, like, once they've defined it, they feel like they can't touch it right. um, or they can't shift away from it or, or whatever. And I had one student in particular a few years back who really struggled with the idea. He just couldn't get his head around um, how this would be done. So similarly to what you do with your clients, I said, well, think of it as best. Think of it as a thesis intention. And and so now I refer to it as a thesis intention because it does help students understand that it's a flexible thing, you know, and, and that it is something that not only could change, but should change as the, as the research goes on, as the writing continues. But yeah, like intending something is different. It gives you a place to start. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I need to have some idea of where I'm headed in order to take the first step. Yes. But that's only the first step. <laughs> and and once I'm in motion, I stay in motion. So it's a matter of just getting myself going and then, you know, changing. And I mean, I've done that with artworks where, where like I'll start out in one direction and end up someplace entirely different. And a perfect example of that is um, several years ago, I was making a mosaic table that was, it was a, a round table and I had started on one section and I kind of was moving in a circular fashion around the table as I was developing this design. And, and um, it started out being a sort of flower thing. And, but then I started to get into this idea that I wanted to depict um, the birth of the universe. So it started to be planets and stars and whatever. And then by the time I got back to the flowers, it came all the way around, the flowers didn't work. So I chipped them out and <laughs> replaced them with planets. And a friend of mine, this was in Australia, a friend of mine said, Oh, Sandy, you're such a dad. You know, it's like, but, but it was like I had no problem getting rid of that first bit, that first bit. And I had no problem with the fact that I had spent time on that first bit. That's what got me going. And, and I do my best thinking while I'm in the process. You know, that whole idea of the, well, like the shakers have the um, hands to work, hearts to God kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when I used to teach design, I would tell my students a pencil in motion stays in motion. It's like just start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And with writing, as you well know, you start somewhere and, and, and you often 
don't keep the first things you did, but you but you get yourself going by starting. And so, so I have no problem with just starting out and changing it later because oftentimes that's what's needed, you know. That's such a wise thing, though. I mean, in in writing, and a lot of my writerly friends talk about it this way. We are so attached to our words that we don't want to kill our darlings, and we have a yes. lot of trouble, like separating from perhaps the idea that started the piece, but that has moved beyond. The piece has moved beyond it now. So, do you have like a a process that you've developed or do, are you like sending up things to the ancestors or the universe that, you know, thank you for your wisdom, but I'm moving on? Or is it just very organic for you? It's pretty organic, but I have had some really great advice along the way. Like when I was writing my thesis, I had a similar thing where I'd had these passages or sections, whole entire chapters that I had worked on that I, you know, that I was in love with, but that didn't fit the overall, ultimately. And and I had a really wonderful, very wise thesis advisor who said, you don't, have, you don't have to be, you know, get rid of them, Sandy. Just put them in a folder somewhere, you know, for later use. So it made it less painful that I was ditching them out of my thesis. And, I mean, they've been sitting there now for well over 10 years and may never be used for anything, but it allowed me not to use them in that moment. And and I think that's, that is still how I think about things. You know, I'll start something or I have an idea or whatever, and I might start something about it. And then, I, it, you know, once that dries up or if it doesn't fit where I'm going, I put it aside with the idea that I can get back to it. Um you know, and as you know, I've got so many ideas happening all the time that I really go back to things, but occasionally I did, and I, mm-hmm. I do, and, you know, they're there if I want them. I haven't lost them, you know, and, I, and you know, but at, this, at this point, I have a Dropbox full of bits of writings that may never see the light of day, but then again, who knows, they may. I did an entire chapter on New England Puritanism that, that was, like, more than six months of research more than 80,000 words um, that boil down into 20,000 word chapter. And that chapter's, I mean, I think two sentences of two sentences of it made it into my thesis, but it was stuff I needed to know. And it was stuff that I needed to understand in order to get my feet on the ground. So I don't care, you know, <laughs> it's a part of that process. And, and that chapter's sitting somewhere. If anybody ever wants a chapter on New England Puritanism and my relationship to it, they're welcome to it. <laughs> did you talk about I, it? I, from know like why, a, I know just where to find it. <laughs> did you talk about it from like a family perspective or just how, um, how yes, you Yes, I started, okay. I, I, it was, it started as, you know, like what my struggles were with the, with the religious instruction of my childhood. So how that came about and and what the what the frustrations and unanswered questions were and 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 sort of how I dealt with them at, at different points of my life you know like um you know I, I was raised in a Protestant family always went to church as soon as I moved away from home I stopped going to church in my 20s I considered myself an atheist as soon as my son was born I realized that I'm not an atheist but I wasn't really sure where where or if um, religion, spirituality, or any of that stuff fit. And all I, so what I used to, I, I think in my thesis, how I referred to that was that, you know, there was a hole left where, where my early religious training had, 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 had occurred. Um, and that I have looked for ways to fill that hole 
pretty much all of my adult life, you know, like, um, organized religion doesn't really do it for me. Um, and I, you know, I've sort of played with various different sort of spiritualities, but they don't really do it for me. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I don't even know what to, how to describe it, but I, there's no kind of creed or doctrine or whatever that, that, that does a one size fits all thing for me. So I, I really am like what they call a bower bird. I like to pick little bits and pieces and put them together. And, and, um, and really, I mean, this is going to sound more alarming than it actually is, but through the process of examining that and particularly in writing about it a lot, um, as I was writing my thesis, I came to realize that what I really am is not religious and not spiritual, but animist. And that's a whole different way of being in the world. So, so, but, but it, it kind of satisfied that understanding of, you know, you know, what is that thing in you that when you're walking in a beautiful vista, your your entire being expands and feels connected? It's like, to me, that was, I had a, a sense that that was a sacred thing. Um, and now I, I look at connection, connection as being um, how I define sacredness, you know. So when I feel that sense of deep connection to something, um, that is the piece that I used to define as, as a sacred moment. And what um, can you define yeah, so, animus for me? Animist, what what that means? Well, I mean, animism from in 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 most contexts or how it's mostly been described, people describe it as a religion. Um, but you know, where people worship trees, rocks, whatever. But the best stuff that I read and the stuff that actually resonated with me is that it's not it's not a religion. It's a worldview. It's it's seeing yourself in relationship to those things. So. You know, so I'm walking along, for instance, a, uh, in, a, in a beautiful forest, and I see an exquisite tree, and I have this moment, me and the tree, you know, of, of connection, of recognizing its beauty. And, and, and um, you know, a, another aspect of that for me is a sense that I feel as though I have a relationship with crows, that crows talk to me. But, but at the very least, I am so attracted to... Um, the presence of crows that I feel like I'm in community with them at, at times, and and so that's the, the kind of connection I mean, and and I don't question that anymore. I mean, I don't try to make it more than it is. I don't I don't think of crows as messengers. I don't think of them as intermediaries. But I feel that I am in in some sort of sense of connection or community. So it is, is it weird or not, this is not connected, but when I'm sometimes I'm really like deeply thinking of you and I can hear crows, are two things just connected in my mind or are the crows showing up to be like, yep, you're thinking of Sandy, we know. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I, and I, I love those questions. I don't have those answers and I'm comfortable with the fact that I don't have answers. You know, it's like, I don't know what it is. I don't know that I will ever know. And I'm particularly coming from, you know, the background that I came from where, where the, those kinds of ideas aren't acknowledged as serious or important or real. Yeah, yeah. But I've, I've talked to plenty of people that I consider to be mo- much more deeply spiritual and wise than I am about how that, th- that stuff works. And, and, you know, a lot of them would say, yes, there is, a, there is a relationship, there is an understanding, and the crows are there for a purpose. And, but I have to say, you know, given what you just said, 
one of the things that really, really makes me deeply happy about the fact that crows seemed to be the thing that connected me to, to whatever, um, and that they became important to me, is that crows are everywhere in the world. And so I am constantly mm-hmm. being reminded, or, or, or my, you know, my presence is constantly being brought to people's minds all over the world. You know, the people that I care about, like I'll get a, a, a email from a friend in, in Australia that will say, well, a crow came to the window today and I thought of you and I thought that was smart. You know, like I didn't pick an albatross. So I picked something <laughs> that actually shows up in people's frames of reference. So I'm, you know, people are reminded of me on a regular basis, which is really nice for, you know, for, for me. I mean, like, as you know, up until recently, I've been kind of a vagabond. So to have people think about you is a really grounding thing. And, yes. and, um, and so that was nice, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't plan it. I promised. I love that. The uh, the animus thing is, am I saying that right? Ani- animist? Animist? Animus? Animist. Yep. A- animist. It reminds me of, um, have you ever seen Wings of Desire? It's a movie by Vim Wenders. Yes. So the angels walk through the library and they pick up different objects because they have uh, soul or uh, yep. substance yep. or whatever. And I love that idea that Oh, I, my heart was singing when I was watching this that everything has that um, life to it, like everything has. Yes. And I love that the angels were the ones that were recognizing it. And I just, you know, like, you know, I'm not I'm not a, a religious person. I, I ascribe to nothing. My religious upbringing was very similar. I didn't it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I remember asking questions and finding very unfulfilling answers. Um, But I do have a sense of, I think, spirituality, but it's not, it doesn't have a definition to it for me. And and that's okay. And I've, I've never found a religion. But I do love that sense that we're connected to the world and the world is connected to us and we're connected to other people and they're connected to us. And we can, you know, with our thoughts, with our feelings, with our beings, connect to animals and the environment around us and the water and a beautiful sunset and so i i think that and an object you know and and um there's a a, uh anthropologist um who i think did work a lot of his sort of definitive work was in the i think 40s and 50s his name is alfred hallowell and he worked with the ojibwe and he refers to the other entities that we are in relationship with as other than human persons. And I just love that idea. And I think that idea actually was what made it sort of click into place for me, you know, like, and that personhood was based on relationship. So, you know, so that, you know, we have this idea that, that all human beings have personhood because of the fact of their being human. But, but the Ojibwe, um, basis for that idea was the relationship, you know. So so a crow, you know, like lighting in a oak tree means that the crow person is relating to the oak person. It doesn't require the human to 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 have a uh, you know to be a person or to have a personhood sort of um, sense and and I just really love that idea. And it it actually too it it relates to an idea that I've had about artwork which you know like Artworks, once they're sort of, say, a, a famous artwork that's that's been bought by a museum or whatever, and it's in a museum, 
it goes on, it continues on to have a life. And that life includes a bunch of stuff, not the least of which is deterioration and oxidation and all that kind of stuff, but also every single person that looks at it and relates to it yeah. and, and has some sort of a moment with it. And and so, you know, so in in that sense, then artists are like the progenitors of children in a way. They go out into the world and 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 then have relationships that are beyond you know, the, the original artist. And, you know, people will say to me, you know, like, does it matter if people like your work? It's like, no, I mean, what matters is, is whether or not, um, there is some exchange of some sort, you know, and mm-hmm. for the ones that, that, that are in the world. Definitely. Facil- that would be the point. I view, and I've had, um, I've just started recently more embracing this idea more in my relationship to the write, the writing that I do in my work, that I'm the facilitator of a conversation, and I'm writing my work for me. And I am really psyched to see people's different reactions, but I'm, I, I think ultimately I don't really care if they like it or not. It's not about that for me. It, it's hopefully facilitating a conversation or starting a conversation. Yeah, for me too. Like, I mean, one of the things that that um, alerted me to the fact that I, you know, that defining myself as an, um, as an atheist was a little bit um, premature and or or um, not sufficient was that I I would always refer to my as my artworks as being conversations with something other, and I couldn't tell you what the conversation was was with, but it was be something beyond myself. So, so whether or not it was with an idea or with, um, the ancestors or with some sort of, um, or with the materials, but it, but it was, it was an other, you know, and, and I, and I had never really, um, completely defined that, but I, but I knew that that was in play. I could feel that it was in play and that, I, you know, somehow I was, I was, um, I was trying to make myself understood to something, you know, and, and, and beyond myself. So, yeah. So it's funny. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. Well, it was, it's been interesting for me how my, my art has actually taught me things that I needed to know about myself that, that I maybe couldn't say quite bluntly or I would run away in horror, but, <laughs> but, but that I, you know, it was like a gentle way of alerting myself to things that I needed to look deep, more deeply at. Um, and, and you know, over time, have have managed to do that with some things. Like what? Um, well, like the sacred, um, but also my relationship to place. And 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 you, when you were talking before about how objects have have sort of um, can have energies or souls or whatever, it reminded me of a um, conversation I had yesterday, but also of some some um, research I did and, and information I gained when I was in. Australia, and and that was about how places know what they are, and um, and and they continue to be that thing. And and I and it's an idea I love because it, it for, number one, it gives me comfort that you know what's happening in the world isn't destroying the world, the natural world. Um, I mean, we're certainly destroying some things, but but that that there are energies that that work through us that we don't even know. And the example of that is um, the Aboriginal elder that I worked with a bit, Noel Manup, he talks about how um, in Western Australia, in Perth, um, city of Perth, there are several sites um, 
that have modern structures on them now, um, like the West Australian law, courts of law, um, the Fiona Stanley Hospital. Um, I forget what the boys' school is, but there's a like a private school for boys, um, being three examples. Um, the law courts is on the site that used to be the traditional Aboriginal law ground. So it was where people came with their grievances and they were meted out punishments or, or rewards or whatever, but having to do with, with um, law issues. And so that place is still a law place. And it wasn't though, it, it wasn't as though the West Australian government put the law courts there as a way to honor what had been Aboriginal. It's just that that was the place where the law courts ended up because the place spoke you know, and and the other, um, the Fiona Stanley Hospital, is on the on the site of an old healing ground. The boys' school is on the site of um, an adolescent boys' initiation ground. You know, so like those three places are perfect examples of places knowing what they are, and that you know we may be thinking that we're making decisions, but we're actually just responding to the resonance of place, and and that's an idea that I love. Um, there's another guy um, who wrote about, uh, I think his last name is Hansen, and he wrote a book that was an a, um, investigation of the one square mile around where he lives. Uh, I think it's somewhere near Worcester, I think, is where he, 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 um, he was when he did this. But it was 15,000 years of history. So the idea that every place, you know, no matter where you stand on the world, there are thousands of years of history yeah. that happened right there. And, and that's another idea I love, you know, and it makes me attend to the places I'm in in a different kind of way. Um, and when I've walked in places that are ancestral and the people who live there, whose ancestors live there, tell me about their relationship, that's another way of looking at the world that I love. Yeah. You know, I was in Nova Scotia and walking through the woods with this um, Mi'kmaq man who was saying, you know, you have to be careful where you step because you never know which fire, you know, which rocks were the ones that your ancestors used for the sacred fire. And, you know, and, and another time out in, in the Southwest, I was walking with a with a friend in, in um, a Native American friend in New Mexico who was saying, you know, he said, see that hill over there? That's where my where my ancestors live when the Spanish came. We're talking 1500s, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then see that hill, that's where they came. That's where they lived when the ancient enemy came. And, you know, we're talking 2000 years ago. So he had this sense of place that, you know, like I will never know because I've, you know, I've never lived in a place where, you know, generations and generations and generations before me have been, but, but it's a, it's a fascinating way to look at the different ways that people relate to place. And, and that interests me. And it, that's changed. I was going to ask if you um, have thought about like how we do that with intention, because it sounds like you know you do that with your artwork, sort of asking it what it wants to be. But I wonder how we would do that with place, because um, you know one of a, a very specific example is MATV's in transition. They're looking for a new, a building, a new home. So how do you like? how do you say what does it want to be and where should it go with some sort of intention knowing that it will probably end up hopefully where it's meant to be but like you know like do you get to guide the process does it just happen organically like do we how do we tap into that in idea of intention I'm not sure about that I mean I'm I'm guessing that 
if you ask Noel Manup, he'd have a very clear explanation of that and understand it, but also he would have a clear understanding and explanation about that in relationship to Perth. You know, so so it, it had would have to do with somebody um who was deeply connected to the place where you're in and understood mm. the energies of that place. Mm. But, but, um, and I don't know that you can guide it. I, I, I think maybe, um, the best thing you can do for a lot of this kind of stuff is to stay the hell out of the way, <laughs> you know? So, so that's your intention. Your intention is to move, is to move your, your thoughts, your plans, your, your whatever's aside so that, um, the information can move through you in a clearer way. And it mm-hmm. kind of relates to something I've always said about myself um, because I have these really, uh, at times I have these really um, clear dreams about, you know, like if I have a problem that I'm work, trying to work out in my mind and I'll have a dream that'll be like a, an allegory or a, a, a metaphor mm-hmm. for for the problem um, and in an extreme sort of form, so that when I wake up, I absolutely know not only the answer, but that I always knew the answer. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's it's made me, you know, over time say that I'm much smarter when I sleep. But the point is that I'm out of my way when I'm asleep because yes. I don't have that editing voice. I don't have that, it ought to be this way, or I really ought to consider this. Yep. It's just me in pure form channeling the information. And yeah. I think that's kind of, that that's kind of key is that you recognize where you need to get the hell out of the way. And, yeah. and, and then let it go, you know, and, and let it happen and hope for the best and, or make it the best. That's the other thing too, like, like learning how to land on your feet and work with what is, is a skill that I think is becoming more and more lost, but it's more and more needed yes. because life just throws you curveballs, you know? Yeah. Like the Allen wrench wasn't in the packaging. How am I supposed to put this together? <laughs> you figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I have yeah. to move a whole household full of stuff multiple times. How am I going to do that? Yeah. You worked it out, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, for one of the things is that I've pared down belongings to almost non-existent. But, but yeah, that that certainly helps. But, yeah, you do. You work things out. And, I mean, that's that's never been my issue. And, and when I, you know, like... Oftentimes, people will say how how remarkable they they find it that I'm you know sort of willing to fling myself at at the unknown um, because I think that scares a lot of people. And I think for me, what scares me more is is you know being stuck. You know, the kind of the stasis mm. point. Yeah. Plus, I don't think I mean what they assume is kind of a, an act of bravery is more just a lack of common sense. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not unusual that I fling myself over over the edge of a cliff and, and then start desperately praying for wings of some sort, you know, and like my whole plummet is me working out, you know, what what's going to happen when I land and where I'm going to go next, you know, so so it, you know, it, it's not it's just a different way. And, and I think, you know, maybe if I were to, if someone were to say to me, what do you think is your best attribute? I think, I think it's that being able to to think and adjust on my feet. Mm-hmm. And, and it's what's been my saving grace, you know, like, and allowed really big shifts and changes. Some of one, ones that I, you know, brought on myself, but others I didn't. And, you know, so that is, life has handed me lots of change, you know, for varying reasons. And, so it was a good skill to have. Do you think um, that 
I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to let you <laughs> I was going to say, do you think that that attitude has helped you um, with relationships in your life? Oh, definitely. Well, I mean, I also think that I, the thing that, that helps me the most is that I am very um, open-ended about, about what I expect from a relationship. So I, things don't have to look in a certain way for me to be, to me, for me to be satisfied, I'm happy to shift and change with them as they shift and change. And relationships do, you know, like sometimes you're close to people, sometimes you're not. Sometimes they're in good moods and treating you well, sometimes they're not. And I don't tend to look at individual behaviors as 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 um, things that I either praise or damn people for. Though I mean, there are times when when I probably should have been a little bit more. Um, aware of patterns of behaviors that weren't necessarily positive, <laughs> but, but um, you know, but I, but I think you know that that ability to look at um, at a relationship as a fluid entity, I think, is is the main thing. And yeah, and also my own my own relationship to the world. You know, I think that's the real thing. I, I think you know one of the one of the gifts of age is that I don't I, I no longer think about what other people need to shift in order for me to be happy. You know, like it's, it's all about how I shift. And sometimes that's by moving away from people. Sometimes it's by moving towards them. Sometimes it's by adjusting how I react to what they do. You know, I mean, that, Mm -hmm. that it's, it's, it's all sort of centered and, and, um, you know, anytime I externalize my, you know, my frustrations or my angers or my hurts, it's, I'm just headed down the wrong path. Because, you know, that never gets you anywhere. I think it's an interesting thing you and I have talked about many times. And not really advice, but sort of your counsel around um, transition for kids and like sort of how they process things and, and that idea of them being in flux around a really big milestone or a time mm-hmm. of change. And it's like, I think that can be applied to adults I don't think we can always be in a state of flux or in change. We need sort of like, we need the waves. We need the pattern of the wave. We need to have perhaps highs and lows and lulls. And then we need to sort of be able to catch our breath. And then we can go through another state of um, process. What yeah, you, what I you, agree with that. But I, but I actually wish that more people were more comfortable with the transition. You know, I mean, and and more aware of the potential of the transition. Like, there's been some great studies on on the ritual process, and yeah. you know, it's all about that transition. You know, it's yeah. it's not about the moment of of stepping out transformed. It's 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 not about the moment of beginning. It's all about that long, long piece. And you know, and and it, it's funny because you read about ritual transition, and they will and they will talk about the liminal phase, and that liminal phase is the transitional one, so the it's the between place, and it's almost like a throwaway, right. where and and I, I you know there'll be like a long description of of what happens before, there'll be a long description about what happens after, and I'll think that's the piece I want to understand, you know, like this yeah. this this is the piece I, that I wish that there was more written on, and and that more people were comfortable with or curious about. And like, I'm in the midst of losing who I used to be and becoming something else. In that moment, that something else could be anything, it, as long as we're open to the idea of, you know, I've let go of who I was. Now what, Now let's see what happens. And, you know, 
there's a pretty amazing woman that's part of my circle on Facebook. Um, she is a doctor, a PhD. Uh, she uh, writes and works with people who are going through the dying process. And she writes mm. a lot about that liminal phase. And um, she is about what is the wisdom there? Like, what, what can you learn? And um, she happens to be fairly salty as well. So I love, I just love her approach. And I love when she writes about it. And I love when she posts things about things that have happened at um, the, um, she's in the Texas area. She's in San Antonio, actually. And she's the executive director of the Abode for Contemplative Care for the Dying. And so it's all oh, about wow. how do we have that conversation? What's the transition? What are people needing and wanting during that liminal phase? What are they seeing? What are they hearing? What, like, how can we support that as a process and also celebrate it and have it be perhaps what that person wants it to be and what we want it to be and how can we support it? She speaks much more eloquently than I'm describing it. I'm sort of describing it in a very cursory way, but there's a lot of deep thought behind it. It's really beautiful. It's, um, you should check. I'll send you her links online because you would find her work very fascinating. I'd love that. Yeah. And, and, and but then also, you know, as, as you're speaking, I'm thinking that, you know, with birth and death as the, as the two end points, all of life is a liminal phase. You know, and, yeah. and there is, and it relates to that Buddhist notion, which is that death comes at any moment, which sounds depressing, but it's really not. It's just that awareness that, you know, that we are moving always towards that thing, but, and it could happen at any time, which then puts the, the focus on, you know, this piece of the movement right now and, and, but, but moving from one to one. And, and maybe if there was more of an awareness of that, then the, the, sort of liminality of dying wouldn't seem so um, alarming, you know? You know? Right. That's what I... Right, right. And we do. We get caught up in our egos, and we get caught up in our own heads, and we get caught up in these expectations. And it's always about, but wait, 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 that's not finished yet. And, like, even they use this in sports psychology, you know, the best performance is when you relax and you like lean into whatever the thing is and or or allow whatever thing is like you use the breath you use your motion you use your you know perhaps your skill or your intellect or your intelligence or your artistic notion and you breathe into it you don't tighten up and try to rigidly control it and make it be a certain thing or put it back in the box that it came in or whatever yeah, or like like Chevy Chase in Caddyshack, you become the ball. <laughs> yes. So how just does, don't feel it when it hits you. How does being partnered with someone who's not necessarily that same sort of mindset? How do you negotiate that? Um, it's not difficult, and I, I mean. It, because neither of us are 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 of a rigid mindset uh, mm-hmm. about anything, you know, and 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 also, and there's a huge, huge degree of mutual respect, you know, and, and so we recognize, I think, at times where the where the differences are, but we have absolute respect for each other's position, and so that's not a hard bit, and and. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and the interesting thing, like, like some of my struggles with my own with my own 
um, development, I guess, have, have come, you know, into play when we do things like we go out and hike. And and there are a couple of times where he's really comfortable in the work in the in the woods. I'm I'm not necessarily, um, but I am in this mindset that I want to be comfortable with the idea of being in transition and being lost if I am and being whatever. But I mean, he'll tell you there's a couple of times when I've gotten a either cranky or b kind of panicky because we didn't know where we were. And yeah. so, you know, so there is this kind of thing where where, you know. Well, I think I'm I'm continually sort of working through trying to be those things that I that I that I see as being you know positive ways of being in the world, but they are not necessarily um, habits of being. And I mean, I feel that same way about some of the um, the artworks I've done, and and the uh, I'm interested in the idea of like sort of ritual process. So as you know, I've I've carved some ancestor petroglyphs, and mm. I had one have one that I carved for my own ancestors that's now traveled with me a few places. And, and I use it as a way to kind of um, make offerings to my ancestors, to leave messages for my ancestors. But, you know, when I carved it, I thought that, that I would, that I wanted it to become a kind of regular process for me, maybe even a daily sort of thing that I did. And, and, um, to be honest, I probably do things at most once or twice a year or, or, you know, at the very most, maybe six times a year. And, and always when I do it, I'm slightly self-conscious. Um, and I'm aware of my self-consciousness because it is not my habit of being, and it is not my training and it is not my culture. Um, and, and, but it is still something that I am attracted to do. I mean, I do things, um, I think I probably draw from practices that other people have done in the past, but I don't specifically like follow a ritual process from, you know, some tribe or some group or whatever. I, I mean, I come up with my own stuff, but, but it's always a little, a slightly, a slight bit self-conscious and, and I would desperately love for that self-consciousness to go away. And it, and it hasn't entirely. I mean, and it's not that I'm embarrassed by it or that I think that it's not of value. It's just that I'm, it's just, um, it's not natural to me and it's not fluid. And, and so it's so, I, I mean, I think, you know, back to your question, which is a long way past, um, there are the things that we negotiate uh, oftentimes have to do with the things that one or the other of us are in process in, you know? And so, and, and, and that's, you know, that's the, that's the answer. There's, I guess, honoring the process and the process of becoming a couple, you know? I love what that. What that means. And... Adam, Adam is, uh, he's a very charming man. He's very humorous. He's extremely artistic. He's, he's got a really amazing musical sensibility. Um, he is extremely, like, flexible in a sort of, unflexible way but he's just really easygoing like I watch him interact with other people who would kind of chafe me or annoy me and he's just very accepting and not not letting anyone steamroll over him but also very like kind of wise and I know you know family members have sought his counsel and he's just very not judgmental a good listener and when we have traveled, he's been a really good traveling companion, although he has very specific ideas about 
the beach and that he likes to look at it, but he doesn't want to actually touch the sand. And I said, that's kind of the whole <laughs> idea of the beach. When we traveled, like I like kind of to know where we're going and where we're staying. And I don't want to have every moment blocked off, but I want to have sort of a few select things and then kind of maybe, you know, be casual and wing the rest. Um so I have a little bit of that, like I don't mind kind of wandering, but I also kind of want to know we're going to get somewhere eventually. Um, he's much more like, whatever, go with the flow. But then he'll say like, oh, I don't want to go on a tour. And then afterwards, when we've gone on the tour and we've gotten to see uh, the pyramids in, in Mexico, he's like, oh, my God, that was amazing. Thank you. Or when we went to Las Vegas, he like, I'm not going on a tour. I'm like, we have to. The, the, it's awesome. You'll love it. Uh, okay, fine. The Hoover Dam. He was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. Thank you so <laughs> much. But then he also does that for me in that I'll be like, I'll get a little cranky or frustrated or snappy or, or whatever, which is not necessarily my mode. But when I'm tired or kind of, you know, off my game, I'll be like that. And we had it. Uh, incident in the airport where I was pushing suitcase he was pulling suitcases and I was pulling them pushing them whatever and he was behind me and I could feel like his breath on the back of my neck like he was just he was very slowly walking behind me and I was I stopped in the middle of a doorway and I was like just go around me <laughs> like I didn't <laughs> for whatever reason just the presence of him being behind me I was like but he was just very kind of like calmly and gently and nicely behind me, like kind of probably ushering me out the door. But in my mind, I was thinking he was like pushing me out the door. Right. So so it's that idea of like, he's this kind of gentle, lovely reminder of, you know, calmness. But I'm also perhaps the one pushing a little bit in different directions for him to sort of maybe try things that he wouldn't necessarily try. And he's also receptive to that. So it's a nice kind of exchange. Yeah. Because he obviously wouldn't have necessarily been attracted to me if he thought everything that I believed was like cuckoo nutty. Right. So there's some part Yeah, I mean, I think... What you're what you're tra- talking about too is the I mean travel is a to- it's a entirely different entity and I mean one of the things that you know over time that I've come to understand is what are the things that really push my buttons when I'm when I'm challenged and, and like and travel can be quite challenging so the whole idea about you know, like having to manage this and think about that and be on top of that and and so. I know what I need to manage. And, and and one of the things that helped me with that was reading this quite amazing article where um, it was it was written by Spalding Gray and he interviewed the Dalai Lama. And, um, and one of the things that I loved about it was that he was talking, he was asking the Dalai Lama about very practical things and looking for the kind of commonalities between their lives and, and asking the Dalai Lama how he dealt with certain issues. And one of the issues was travel. So he, you know, he said that what he noted was that he, both he and the Dalai Lama traveled a lot and were, you know, like in one city one day and another city another day and whatever. And he, so he asked the Dalai Lama, how do you, how do you um, make that okay? Or how do you, how do you sort of orient yourself when you've gotten to a new place? And the Dalai Lama has talked about how he, he would check into the hotel room and he would go up um, to his room and he would sit on his bed and meditate, you know, for, you know, for some period of time before then going on to doing what he, 
said. And and what I found was how I found that to be incredibly empowering because that's kind of what I need to do when I when I arrive somewhere. Not meditate necessarily, but I need to pull myself out of the fray, which is mm-hmm. what meditation does. Yes. And so, like, if you know, and before that, I was kind of thinking that I was a bit of a travel wimp because I'd want to go to my room and just kind of close the doors and take a shower and lay on the bed for a while before I went out and explored the city or whatever. And I thought, you know, if the if the Dalai Lama needs to do it, like it's okay that I need to do it. Yeah. And I understand that now too. Like I don't like to land someplace, especially after I've been, in a, you know, like a really long distance travel and to have to work out how am I going to get from here to there, what do the whatever. So I get all those things in place ahead of time. I know where I'm going to stay the first night. I know how I'm going to get from the airport to, to where I'm staying. Um, and I and I try to make that as simple as possible. Like you know, like we when as you know, we went to Portugal last year, and mm. one of the things we were going to do was to land in Lisbon and get a car and drive to the drive to the hotel. And I thought that piece doesn't feel right to me. You know, just because it's an unknown city, um, we didn't know if the GPS would be working or if it did, was if it would be speaking to us in Portuguese. <laughs> you know, like there was a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't want to be managing on top of you know, a long piece of travel. Yeah. So, you know, so I said, why don't we just get an Uber to the hotel and then we'll get the, the we'll get the, the car the next day. And, and that's what we ended up doing. And, and, you know, whether or not it would have been okay for John, I don't know, but I knew that it wasn't going to be okay for me and that I would just push my buttons. And, and I try to avoid having my buttons pushed as yeah, much yeah, as possible. Yeah, yeah. So the part of that is knowing yourself and how you move through things and being prepared, you know, and, and so that just that's how it becomes doable for me is that I just know as much as I can about what I need to know going into it and and then letting what happens happens. But yeah, preparing is a, is is helpful and knowing where I'm going to sleep is also quite helpful. Usually, <laughs> you know, like if I know I'm going to have a comfy bed at the end of the day, I'm fine no matter what happens. Do you have any sort of um, objects or things that you find comforting to you that give you that sense of home when you travel? You mean that I bring with me? Yeah. No, no. I, you know, like I, I used to have a lot of objects in my house that were important to me. And and I found that as I became more myself and, be, and, and also was more comfortable of being out in the world, I needed those objects less. And I realized that a lot of those objects related to places I wanted to go or things that I wanted to be doing that I wasn't doing, you know. So, for instance, um, before I ever set out on all the big travel that I've done, um, I had tons of maps up on the wall in my house in New Hampshire. And, and my son and I used to put map tacks in all the places that we want to go and talk about where we wanted to go. And this was long before I even knew I would be traveling, but it was definitely a clue I was giving myself if I had been paying attention. You know, like <laughs> there's something about, you know, nobody else that I knew had maps all over their walls with map packs in them and plans. But so, so you know, and, and a lot of the stuff that I was collecting was like anthropological stuff from places that I was interested in going, like Indonesian artifacts and, mm-hmm. and um, um, you know, artifacts from various places, things like that. So. I also had a, uh, what place, go ahead, ask the question. I was going to ask you what places are on your, on your wish list right now. Right now? Well, I'd love to go back to Portugal and we talk about going back and staying for some period of time. Um, We are going to Australia later in the year. Um, Of course, that doesn't feel like 
travel to me so much is just going home. So it's different, you know, like, like I don't, I don't, um, you know, I, like I, I am really excited to be going there and seeing friends, seeing, you know, seeing Max and Abby and, and, um, and getting everybody to, to know John and to have, you know, relationships start and all that kind of stuff and to show him the places that I spent 20 years basically. But, but, um, but it doesn't, it's not the same kind of excitement I felt at going to um, Portugal because it's not an exploratory thing, you know, but, but yeah, I'd love to go back there. And, um, you know, I don't have a lot of places on my list. I have this idea that I'd really love us to go and do some, some like walking trips in in the UK. So, you know, there's some great like village to village stuff. And and one of the places in the world that I love the most is Cornwall. I'd love to go back. I'd love to go back to, to Ireland as well, um, and and actually go to where the family was from. Because when when I went before, thinking I was doing an ancestral tour, I was in the, exactly the wrong part <laughs> of Ireland. Still had a great time, but it was not where we were from. So. I'd like to go back and go to where we were from. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there, there isn't a big list now. I mean, there's things that pop up every day. Like, there was some road in northern Norway that John saw the other day on, on um, the Internet. You know, it, it, it goes into the file of this is a great thing to do at some point. But but I have in my mind a list of things that are likely that we'll do and things that are not so likely. And I think... I think, you know, Northern Norway, maybe not so likely. Um, you know, if there was an opportunity, we might end up there. There are parts of Southeast Asia I would love to go to. I mean, even though I was living not far from there for a long time, I never managed to get to Vietnam or um, mm. I've heard that um, Laos is really beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I'd, I'd to like to spend Angkor more time Wat. in. And I and there are parts of Indonesia that actually drew me to Indonesia that I've never been to that I'd like to go to. So so I'd love to go to Borneo. I'd love to go to Sumatra, um, and um, and I've never been. So you know, I've only ever spent my time in three islands, which is you know Java and Bali and Lombok. So I'd like to spread out a little bit. Um, love to spend more time in New Zealand. Um, even though it's part of Australia, I've never been. I'd love to. I'd love to go to Tasmania and do some exploring there. So, and part of how I travel is is um, you know I'm never satisfied. You know, unless I really dislike a place, I'm never satisfied in only going once. I mean, I have to go back many, many, many times. And so, you know, I, I don't think I'm done with. Um, Southeast Asia and the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, quite yet. There's still mm-hmm. things to see, and, and um, yeah. But like I said, Portugal's definitely on the list. And you know, one of the things we're talking about is going there and having it as a home base for a while, which yeah. then you know allows us to explore other parts of of Europe as well. Um, I have to say, I loved Portugal a lot, and and I think that there's a lot. There would be a you know a lot to you know, to look to just there without even going to any other countries, just going deeper into Portugal would be quite wonderful, I think. And I'm loving where I am, you know, like this is a whole new world. I was just saying to John yesterday, we were in South Carolina and we go to South Carolina, you know, on a regular basis because he gets his car serviced there and it's the nearest Costco and, you know, things like that. And, and, um, and I, I never thought that South Carolina would be part of my sort of, you know, regular routine. Mm. 
it's it, it's just completely it, it it kind of blows my mind in a way and, and um you know we're five miles from the border so that's a bit it, it's it's a bit surprising I haven't really delved here all that much I you know like I'm not far from Asheville but we haven't spent a lot of time in Asheville yet mm-hmm. and you know there's still some stuff to 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 find. I mean, it's interesting. I've I've traveled a lot, but once I get someplace, I kind of like to stay hunkered for a bit. And yeah. and I remember some friends, some friends in when I was in Australia. Um, I had one friend in particular who who wanted me to do some exploration around around Perth, but you know, hours away, so a nine hour drive north or a, or a seven hour drive south. And at one point, she became kind of frustrated with me because I hadn't been you know, up to Calvary or down to Albany or, or whatever. And, and she said, you never go anywhere. And I went, well, I beg your pardon, but I came like half the world to get here. So I get to rest a little bit, you know, like I don't necessarily have to like dash around and see everything like in the first hour or first year, even the first 20 years, it turns out. So. Well, I have enjoyed our conversation immensely. I, I miss you greatly. And please tell your handsome uh, Jean-Luc Picard, uh, doppelganger with hat and <laughs> funky cocktail in hand, that I, I give him a big kiss from me. Okay. Yeah, you inspired him yesterday. I hope you know. I hope so. He wore his hat all day and then went out and bought bunches of alcoholics <laughs> at Costco. <laughs> well, that's what I like to hear, that I've inspired people for hat wearing and from alcohol. What more could I ask for? Yeah, we were... Well, we were watching Treme last night, and they had a jazz group that was wearing, like, these beautiful suits with colorful shirts and ties. And he said, I want to dress like that. And I said, honestly, if you did that, I'd be swooning from the beginning of the day to the end. So, those those yeah. are Adam's go-to clothes when he gets all oh, handsome. So I'm going to have to up my game, that's for sure. <laughs> well, thank you again, Dr. Sandra You're Adams. Welcome. I really appreciated that you came on my show. And, um I this was um Hi Felicia podcast and I'm your host Felicia Ryan. And sometimes people say bye Felicia. Would you want to say bye Felicia? Bye Felicia. <laughs> <laughs> Oh,